scripture passage this morning comes to us from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 16, which can be found on page 1,218 of your pew Bible. Let us hear God's holy inerrant word. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, here we come before a passage in your Apostle John has had a vision, a vision of you. That so changes him, that so moves him. He begins to proceed to write down this here first book, final book of scripture, a book of scripture that really begins to summarize what you have accomplished in your work and what you will accomplish before your work is done. We pray that you bless us through the word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have those moments in our day-to-day -day life where someone's presence can change the feeling of the room, where their being there can cut through and, and, and change either what we're thinking or how we're acting, how we're behaving. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm personally a fan of listening to Jewish testimonies of conversion uh, stories of Jews who convert and see that Jesus is the Messiah. And I remember one time listening to one, and it was of a man who um, was about to make a terrible decision. Um, one I'll speak delicately about because I have lost loved ones this way. But he was in such a state of depression that he was about to go through with a decision that unfortunately you can't take back when you make it. And as he was about to proceed forward in doing that, his TV cut through the silence and the depression of the moment. And he heard former Mets catcher Gary Carter speaking on a post-game interview for a Mets game. See, Gary Carter at this time was, uh, you probably don't know baseball, 
this far, but he was uh, a notable catcher. He's towards the end of his career at this point, but the Mets were fighting for first place, and he had run out a key throw that allowed them to win the game. And the, the broadcaster is just asking him, how did you do this? How did you do this? You, you're injured at the moment. You're in such physical pain. Your body has broken down. And Gary Carter says, well, we all have to fight through the bruises and the struggles of life from time to time. And then Gary Carter, a, an unapologetic Christian, says, and my Lord and Savior, he gives me the strength to fight through those moments, right? Fight through those dark times. And so all of a sudden, it struck this Jewish man that somehow Gary Carter's relationship with this person named Jesus allowed him to fight through the pain. And so instead of making that terrible decision, the name of Jesus had entered the room, and he actually goes out, and he seeks the Bible, and he begins to read. And he finds that this is the Messiah, this is the Lord and Savior, whose presence takes away the pain. And he is now a, a, a Christian. He's actually a, a pastor, an elder. What does this have to do with our passage today? Well, our passage today really contains the only robust, direct description, and it's not to be understood as a literal description, but of Jesus' physical appearance in all the Bible. There, there are other places you can go, and there's these hints and little, little descriptions, but this is the only full or robust description in the 66 books of Scripture that we have of Jesus' appearance. This is the only time the Bible says, hey, you want to know what Jesus looks like? This is what he looks like. And the picture of what our Savior is like is going to be described, and if we listen intently, and we have eyes to hear it, as Bruce likes to often kind of allude to in his history, we realize we have someone in the midst of our presence who can cut through any situation and change the room for us, change how we think, change how we feel, change how we love, change us in the present struggles of life. When the family tribulations, John taught, we looked at from John last week, when they come upon us and we need to patiently endure, having Jesus in the room changes everything. You know, Rome always prided itself as this historical irony. It thought of itself as the most tolerant government of the world at that time with any religion. But John is preparing them for the reality that there will be an exception within the Roman Empire for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it will be Christianity. It will be the one religion that really Rome tries to root out from time to time. And so John is, after we looked at last week, telling us that we're going to have to be a family that endures tribulation and trial and struggle and hardship together, he's now saying to us, remember, he's going to be in the room with you. We have a God who stands in the room that cuts through the present pain. And how does he cut through? Verse 10 tells us, with a voice like a trumpet. I love to hear a uh, brass band. I think it started because of my family's addiction to USC football and watching their marching band every Saturday. It was a lot of fun to listen to the trumpets, the sounds. Well, I also am a fan of the Red Hill Band. That was uh, when they do play at the Oyster Picnic. The trumpet section of any band can kind of cut through. 
Now, that trumpet language of the Bible, it has a lot of layers to it. In one sense, the trumpet was the emergency broadcast system of its day. It was a great way to call a large group of people. So the emergency broadcast system, it would, it would announce people, it announced to people when they need to prepare for one of two things, usually, even in the Bible. Either a call to war, a call to battle, or it used to call people to the temple to worship. Actually, even Yom Kippur, when it's still celebrated in, in Jewish circles, it begins with a trumpet sound. And do you know the first time you hear the word trumpet in Scripture? A Jew by birth, John, he would have certainly known the answer to this question. It's actually in Exodus chapter 19. The Jewish people have now gathered around Mount Sinai. And starting in verse 13, a warning is made by God. Do not touch the mountain. Do not go up the mountain until you hear the trumpet call. And later on in the chapters, uh, every time God is on Mount Sinai, there's this trumpet kind of sound, this trumpet blast. And do the Jews shout for joy every time they hear it? No, actually, they're fearful of it. They fear God at that mountain, that mountain of Sinai, his voice that sounds like a trumpet. And now Jesus is shown to be the one with the voice of the trumpet. In one sense, it's Jesus is being shown here to be the ultimate prophetic call of all prophetic calls. He's the prophet of prophets. But also, Jesus is the God who commands our attention. See, Revelation is about to make something incredibly clear to us. Well, in the first eight verses, we had, when we talked about the Father speaking to us. Now, John is going to make clear Jesus is very God of very God. Jesus' voice is the same trumpet sound of Sinai. God is no longer veiled to us through the person of Jesus. God is no longer in the smoke and the shadow and the thundering where we can only see his backside as Moses had. We're now allowed to see his face. John's even allowed to describe his face. He faces us now. He looks at us now. John is announcing the great change of biblical history. Now, finally, 66 books into the Bible, we can describe how he looks at us. This last book ever written in Scripture, God finally gives a physical description of himself, even if the description is one intentionally symbolic. John wants us to understand Jesus is the trumpet sound. He is very God of very God, and we can begin to look at him in that way. Are you ready to worship God knowing that he is calling you into battle as one of his subjects? Are you ready to worship God knowing that his voice should call you to worship him? Or you continue to rather make war on the one with the trumpet's voice. He is the sounding trumpet, the God who made himself known on the greatest mountaintop of history, which was not Sinai, but it was Calvary, where he became the substitutionary offering for repentant sinners like you and me. And what does the voice of our Lord and our God, Jesus, tell the Apostle John? He declares, write what you see in a book and send it to seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And why these churches? I mean, in one sense, the church already extends from modern-day southern England to India by this time. Why these churches? 
Well, there are a few reasons. In these seven churches, first we see a number of wholeness and completeness. It's intentional. The number of, of seven shows the wholeness and the completeness, but also they're, they're shaped, and if you've looked at the email the last few weeks that's gone out, they're shaped in a circular pattern. Again, this is a wholeness, a completeness. In one sense, these seven churches will help summarize the seven main issues and, and pitfalls or even successes that churches will have in their battle. This is also just, practically speaking, an ancient coastal route. Ephesus, by this time in history, it's the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, it's kind of in the heart of the empire. Actually, when Rome eventually moves its capital out of Rome, it goes to Constantinople. It goes towards the east because that's a more central place in its empire to get the word out. It goes to a place close to Ephesus. This was the best place to spread the good news of the vision that John received. And so there's practical realities at the moment. And so here is John at this moment. He's exiled into Patmos. He's been kind of cast off into history, and yet he can just insert this letter into the central hub of the Roman Empire. And word goes out, a vision of the Lord has been seen. This letter would have also struck an immediate chord with all the churches. And we'll get more into this in chapters 2 and 3, but John is, in his exile, about to describe the problems that the churches are facing and soon will face in their history. Things that will take place soon, as if you remember from the first early verses of this chapter. And so this announcement, that the first three chapters of the letter for that early church, which will read this book and see a lot of its imagery and say, much like we do, what do we make of this prophecy? They'll be able to look at these early churches in the first three chapters and how it was addressed and say, we can confirm this is the message from Jesus. We can confirm that this is a message from the apostles because it will come to pass. In one sense, this using these seven churches will help show God's providence in the letter. Now, let's get into verses 12 and 13. There, John makes clear he's turning to see this voice that is giving him uh, this image. And I'm not going to get bogged down in this point right now. Revelation has a lot of places you can get bogged down. But this is one of those moments where there are certain people who say there are seven scenes in this book. Think of it as almost seven different camera angles for a sporting event. And every time John sees something like this, he resets the camera angle and he gives us a new glimpse into the reality that is being shown. Um, that's probably, if you're, you're only familiar with kind of a TV preacher who publishes his own book, that's probably a crazy idea for you to hear, that, that in one sense, Revelation has seven, is a seven-act drama with different cameras, different pictures it's trying to bring out. But... Uh, for instance, right down the road at Westminster Theological Seminary, which is one of the finest Reformed seminaries in the world, that, that's like the standard way to understand this book. So, more on that later in the series. What's more important for us today is John sees Jesus as the trumpet sounds of God, standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now, lampstands are traditionally one of those things that interior decorators, you know, care about. We don't. That doesn't sound that exciting, lampstands. And yet, lampstands, first off, were something that were found in the tabernacle of God. They were found where 
the priest was. The priest would stand in the midst of the tabernacle and tend to the lampstand. Well, the lampstands, as we'll see in verse 20, are actually symbolically representing the churches. And where was the tabernacle in the Old Testament? We read about the lampstands and we read about the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. The tabernacle was where the presence of God was. And so Jesus is very God of very God. He is in the presence of the, the, the tabernacle and of the lampstands. And the lampstands were shaped in a specific way in the Bible. They were made to look like a tree. Think of a menorah. They were made to look like tree branches with lights on top of it. And so, if the lampstands, as John will tell us later in this chapter, are representatives of the church, and Jesus is standing in the midst of his church, the church is to be a light-giving tree in a place where God is, in a place where God is present. Let me say that again, because it stumbled out. The church is to be a life-giving tree in a place where God is present. If we want to be a church, true church of Christ, we must be this. By the way, well, and a little later as we get to the next chapter, the light can be removed from churches. So John is saying Christ stands in the midst of his churches in every age, from beginning to end. So he stands with us today if we are a light-bearing, life-giving church. And if we want to continue to stand, him to stand with us and alongside of us, we must continue in that mission of being a life-giving tree. I had a few individuals reach out to me recently. Um, they, they were overwhelmed with uh, candidates, their local church, uh, and applicants. And they came out and they, uh, a few individuals were asking me as part of it to bring up the piano and asking, how should we narrow down for our pastoral search? How should we narrow it down? Do you have any advice to give us? And one of the things I simply said is, listen to the last five minutes of the sermon. Which, you know, why? Well, because see what the pastor closes on. See if he closes on Christ. See if he that his sermons are constructed in a way to be a life-giving thing, centered on the person and work of Christ. And they, they, they were like, oh man, that's, that's kind of simple. And so I, I think they're in the process of narrowing it down. Does the preaching, does the mission, does the worship of the church center around the person of Christ, or does it get lost in other things? You know, a lot of times, I know I sound like a curmudgeon, but I, I, I try to really protect that time from the call to worship to the benediction, because this is a time for us to focus on the person and work of Christ. Churches without a life-giving purpose are churches uh, that Christ will abandon, but Light-giving churches, however, churches that do put off light, are churches Jesus stands by and is faithful to. So let us be such a church. As Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is heaven. And so, we need to be mindful of that. And all things doesn't mean that necessarily everything needs to be dour or serious either. Jesus wasn't always dour and serious, but just as Zechariah chapter 4 tells us, churches are the lampstands of the world, and 
God will use his Holy Spirit to work in us. Next, John begins the only direct description of Jesus in the entire Bible. Again, it's not that you can't get other glimpses or snapshots of one feature, but his full description is unique. At first, he is described wearing a long robe. The longer the robe in ancient Roman society, the more power you had. And so, the, and so this shows his kingliness. This shows the legality of himself. It shows the importance of the individual, as does the gold shaft, uh, the gold sash. Yet so much of what we knew about Jesus from the Gospels is what? He was adorned in anything but regal clothing. He came into the world naked, wrapped in swaddling clothes. At the Transfiguration, you might have brought uh, beamed brightly for a moment, and yet the moment was fleeting. At the Passion, he was stripped naked and made to wear a purple robe to mock him before going to the cross. But now John sees the culmination of all things, clothing that is worthy of his honor, a golden sash that demonstrates his royal kingship. John sees Jesus in all his kingly array. He sees Jesus as, the, as God, the, the one who Daniel describes in chapter 7 of his prophecy. Basically, John's saying not only does the trumpet show Jesus as God, but his appearance is like the kind of prophets such as Daniel saw for the ancient of days himself. So John's telling us right now, the one I used to call the Son of Man is actually the God of the Old Testament and the God that the prophets interacted with. Here is John seeing Jesus in his array as a bridegroom. He's getting a beatific vision of God. And then we learn how the hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. More references to Daniel and even the prophet Isaiah there. The shimmering white of Jesus' hair is talking about how he has both the fullness of wisdom and purity within himself. Now, is it being literal? Some want to say yes. But again, remember what John said in the first eight verses of this book. We're asked to sit and listen to it. Now's a, a quick good time to, to go back into description. There's a channel I used to watch. I'm trying to avoid it because I'm trying to lose weight here. But it was the Food Network. And the culmination of almost every program on the Food Network happens when the judge or the chef finally takes a bite of what they were eating and they start describing it. So like Guy Fieri goes, oh, my mouth is taken on a train to Flavortown or something like that. I mean, why do we watch this program? Why does this relate to us? I have no idea. And yet we hear these sensational descriptions, and first off, we shortly thereafter make that food run that we probably shouldn't, probably late in life. But, you know, we hear that and we remember something about the food. We remember something about the meal. You know, we're the people that when we gather around a, a regular table, what do you think of the meal? Yeah, it's good. Thank you. The soup is good, honey. Um, well, the spaghetti is good. And spaghetti last night was really good. The marinara was excellent. Uh, meatball soup. Delicious. But they decide to create this robust description. Why? Because they're listening. Well, they know we're listening, and they want us to remember something. A similar thing is going on here. John is giving description so that we can remember what kind of qualities he is seeing in Jesus. I think it's a mistake to take a very kind of literal view. So first, the white hair, these sorts of things show the wisdom, the eternal purity and goodness that's found in Christ. 
Next, we have a description. His eyes are like the fl uh, flame fire. Now, let's just be honest here. If I told you the all-seeing flaming eye in pop culture 2,000 years later, what do a lot of people picture? Let's say it. Come on, who's brave enough to say it? Sauron. Yeah? Lord of the Rings thing. The thing that Frodo and, and Bilbo go off to destroy. And the fellowship has to destroy. We don't really like that description of Jesus. I don't really like to picture Jesus' eyes flaming like fire. It doesn't seem all that great to me. But Jesus is about to tell some churches, you, you will go off into persecution and to death. You know, when we have those moments in life where life seems to come crashing down on us, not necessarily, I mean, we get our, enough trouble on our own selves all the time, but life just comes crashing down on us for things outside of our control. Sometimes even, I, I know I'm not alone in this, some of the worst events in my life were things that weren't necessarily brought about by my own sin, but sin somebody else. What is our thought in those moments? It's kind of like the thought of John the Baptist before he was put to death. What did John the Baptist send a message to Jesus saying, are you really the Messiah? Or another way to say it, how we say it now? Are you really God? Do you really care about these things? Do you care about my suffering? Do you care about my struggles? And his eyes being like fire, that would have, that's really a promise. I don't fail to see anything that's happening. I, I see it all. And I will judge. I will judge that which is wrong. And so that's why that's a part of the image. So the next time, Christian, you think your king has just abandoned you into despair, remember his hair and his crown in one sense. The, the hair is always described kind of his crown. It's full of wisdom and purity, and his eyes never have failed to see that which deserves judgment. Next, Jesus is described as having feet like a burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. Basically, that the feet at one point had been put into the furnace of fire. An incredible description. And one that's understood by remembering the first sharing of the gospel in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When we were promised the Messiah, the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. What would happen to his feet? Be bruised, right? Would be bruised. I think some of the symbolism that John has here is he's looking at the atonement of Christ, the work of Christ. Here, Christ. Well, how do you how do you check a metal's purity? They still do it this day. How do you check a metal's purity? You put it in the fire, right? That's how you can check the content of it. Um, you you put it in the fire. Jesus was put in the fire on Calvary. His purity was shown three days later in the resurrection from the dead. He had shown that he was not a liar when his last words upon the cross were, it is finished. He had crushed sin in such a way and triumphed in such a way that he, his purity was proven. And it was proven as good. And so I think part of the picture here that John is, is showing is that this is the one who has stood the, the greatest test of history. He has faced down the agonies of hell. 
upon Calvary and did so remaining pure. To prove that this is our king who will not fail us. To finish crushing evil, sin, and death. Then we have a description of the voice now being like the roar of many waters. Moving us out of this Daniel imagery, actually into imagery from Ezekiel. I believe chapter 42, but I'm away from my notes. And that imagery was of a time Ezekiel saw in the future when God would finally return to his temple. And I think what Ezekiel was seeing was not just the second temple of Judaism, but he was seeing Christ's return to the temple in the second coming. He was given a veiled look at that. And so that's a, this is a reference to that moment, to Christ's return to the temple um, and to restore all of creation to him. And what is really the first temple of the Bible? The first temple of the Bible is actually in the Garden of Eden. The earth is the fullness of the Lord's temple. And so this looks forward to the day where Christ will restore the earth. It has other implications as well, but I do have to finish the sermon at some point. I can see the guys getting antsy. Um, and then we hear of the seven stars. And John will tell us four verses later they represent all the angels. That basically Christ has a hold of all the heavenly hosts, the heavenly bodies, and of his church. He's in the room. But also, it was very popular at this time when a, when a Caesar died. For instance, when Domitian lost his heir, he printed out coins of his son in the presence of the stars, saying that his son went to Zeus. It was sort of like the idea that when the Caesar goes, he goes to become the star and he goes to be in the presence of the other stars, the other pagan gods. Well, here is Jesus, and he holds all the stars. He is the ultimate power, the ultimate authority. And so Jesus' angels watch over faithful churches at his command. He is the high priest in the room. He is the prophet of all prophets. He is the king of the kings. He watches over those churches that refuse to surrender the light of Christ. He is the one who hung on a tree who this passage has now described as a prophet with a voice like a trumpet, a priest in the midst of the lampstand, and a king adorned in royal attire. And now, as we close, let us zoom in to the second half of verse 15. And I think this is my favorite image of all the verses. It's the two-edged sword coming out of the mouth. Now, math question here. All right, let's see. Let's do the cat. I'm going to call him Monica. Monica? How many ways can a two-edged sword cut? Two. I'm glad you got it. Hopefully you all got it too. I knew you guys could get there. A two-edged sword can cut two ways. Coming from his mouth. The mouth that earlier on was described as a trumpet. And a trumpet that in the Bible often cuts and announces either a call to worship or a call to war. Jesus is the blade that cuts two ways. You will either receive the dull end of the blade. The dull end of the blade was made dull because it is the end of the blade that Jesus allowed to fall upon himself. Upon Calvary, where he paid for our sins, where he became our Lord and Savior, where he offered himself as a sacrificial offering of love for the world that had rejected him, that had cast him off except that end of the blade. 
come to your knees and fall and worship him. Bow down before him. If you have not today and you're hearing this, please do so. Because there is another end of the blade. The sharpest of ends of the blade. And it will cut those who down who will make war upon you. Yes, you might triumph in this life to be your own God. But there will be a day where you have to go before the King of the Lord and the King of all kings, the one with the longest royal robe, the one with all power and wisdom, all might, a voice like a trumpet. When he rushes into his temple, which is the earth, the fullness of the Lord, and he makes it his own, where he will make battle against those and cut down his enemies with the sharpest end of the sword, who still refuse him. Do not allow yourself to be cut down by the wrong edge of the sword. Do not forsake the king's blade. You do not want to do battle with him. Have you not heard this king's description? Do you not know the terms of peace he graciously offers you today from the mountaintop of Calvary? Bow your knees. Turn around from your life. To repent is to turn from your sins. Turn around. See the beautiful face of Christ. Get the beautiful vision of our Lord Jesus. His presence has come upon this world. And that should change you. Worship our risen and triumphant King and live by His words. Receive and remember the one who is our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You that You have given such a beautiful Son to us. I pray that we continue to grow in our vision of Him, our focus upon His face, so that it might drive us to be glowing lampstands within our community, glowing lights, helping draw others in the darkness that is the time we live in to the one who is King. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.